Hey there, welcome to Taiwan Talk. I'm Alex Lewis. This week I spoke to Rosie Cook, a cultural materials conservator, about conservation, museums, and much more. Take a listen. Rosie Cook, how are you doing? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty happy to be here. <laughs> Excellent. Could you give the listeners a little bit about your background? Uh, so I'm a cultural materials conservator. We also tend to define ourselves as emerging conservators because I recently qualified. And it's the kind of job where you need a lot of experience to be really good at what we do. And mm -hmm. uh, I recently completed my training in Australia. I graduated last year in the University of Melbourne. And this year I've been really fortunate to receive uh, an Asian Arts Residency, which has allowed me to come to Taiwan, where I've been based, and uh, continue learning about Asian culture and how conservation can support the continuation of Chinese heritage. <laughs> that's, I think that's a pretty good intro. Uh, so what got you interested in material conservation? So I've always had a... A passion for art. I'm not that talented of an artist, but I started probably in my mid-teens. I was really fortunate in that there was a program, a history of the arts program at in France where I studied. Uh, so I did a French baccalaureate of history of the arts, which included introduction to not just painting and sculpture, but things like uh, urban design, photography, theatre and dance. And following on from that, which was a three-year program, I, when I was looking at what to study at university, uh, came across the School of Oriental and African Studies, SOAS, in the UK. And they do a program which is uh, a Bachelor's in History of Art and Archaeology of Africa and Asia, which is a ridiculously long title. Yeah. Uh, obviously, you can't, in a four-year program, specialise to that degree over the whole of two rather large continents. So I specialized in East Asia and I studied Mandarin, both Putonghua and classical Chinese, because I was really interested in Chinese archaeology at the time. And I studied Mandarin, uh, not just in London, but we got to do a year in Beijing and I did a couple of scholarships in Taiwan, uh, which really helped me move from this language is impossible to this language is kind of useful right, yeah. uh, to actually being a bit more conversational. And uh, after I graduated, I was thrown into the harsh reality that art history isn't really a high employment sector. I've heard that. <laughs> so I was really glad to have the Mandarin to back me up and uh, spent a good six, seven years wandering in and out of different jobs until I came to the Prado in Madrid on holiday and uh, looked up and spotted their conservation labs and just knew it was like a, you know, the, like it descended from the heavens. I just knew this is where I needed to be. This is what I want to do. This was what I was born for, which is really fortunate that I felt with such passion and drive because when it came down to actually doing the studies and doing the training, um, it was expensive. I had to work full-time and study part-time, and to stay motivated was hard at times, which is why it's been a really exciting time the past year since I've graduated, where it's actually finally coming to fruition. I'm finally getting to just live 24-7 conservation. And what brought you to Taiwan? As I mentioned, I have studied here in the past. I came here on a, a language Ministry of Education language scholarship, and uh, fell in love with Taiwan. It was much more aligned with my uh, my sensibilities compared to Beijing, where I'd studied in the past. And 
I came back again and again <laughs> and again. It sort of became a, a second home where when I didn't quite know what to do next, I thought I'm going to scrape up my meager savings and go and live in Taiwan for a few months, do a language course, top up my Chinese, mm-hmm. um, and just really enjoy the lifestyle and the you know how warm and welcoming it is here, both. Literally and figuratively. So it kind of became your base. <laughs> it is. It is. I am someone who doesn't really identify with a specific culture. I don't feel. I was born in England and I grew up in France, and I've lived on and off in Australia. Become Australian recently, in fact. But when I think about the countries that feel like home, probably would be Australia, then Taiwan, and then France and England. Last of all, which is ironic with the accent that I have. <laughs> <laughs> What projects are you working on here in Taiwan? So, as I mentioned, I'm here on an AsiaLink Arts residency, uh, which is funded by Creative Victoria and Arts Council in Australia. And that residency had its origins in an internship I did at the Taiyuan Asian Puppet Theatre Museum last year. I came over for six weeks and worked with the conservator, the head of conservation there. In fact, on uh, a, a number of different objects, mostly. Of glove puppets, but uh, it was really great because there's a whole variety of materials and cultures, in fact, represented in their collection. And we were inspired to apply for a grant so that I could come back and work on costumes specifically, glove puppet costumes, um, which are really fascinating because they're these little miniature outfits and they're really lush materials of silk and gold embroidery. Um, but they've also had a A pretty hard life because they'll have gone through hundreds and hundreds of performances, thrown around, kept in boxes. So they're in a bit of in need of a bit of TLC. So yeah, we put this forward to Asia Link Arts as a an opportunity for me to learn more about cultural heritage in Taiwan and the broader Chinese ethnic Chinese culture, but also for me to bring an Australian taste to how we approach their conservation. Back to the the Taiyuan Asian Puppet Theater Museum, mm-hmm. do they give live performances of the puppets? Do they get to use them, or do you get to use them at all? So the museum is actually um, belongs to a, a larger foundation, which is the Taiyuan, uh, I think, Puppet Theater Foundation. They have um, they've got a, a performance company as well, and they also have a, a theater called the Nado Theater, and they also have. Uh, publications, like it's, there's quite a lot of things that fall under that umbrella of Taiyuan Foundation, and uh, the museum itself um, tends to be more about exhibitions. Uh, although we do try to make them as interactive as possible, because puppets need to, they need some kind of human involvement to come to life. The performance company is is somewhat separate, so I'll get to go and see the performances. And actually, the head of conservation, Kim Zebert, will often um, help care for the puppets, keep them in good condition. But uh, the most important part, I guess, is that I get to see puppeteers on a regular basis, and they've actually got a few different um, classes for keen young Taiwanese who want to learn how to make a traditional puppet or how to perform, uh, learning from puppet masters. Uh, so it's kind of like a hive of activity, all based around puppetry, and I sort of drift in and out when I have time. <laughs> So for the Asia Link Arts Residency, that's a residency out of Melbourne.、Mm-hmm. Asia Link Arts is a subset of Asia Link, which is an organisation at the University of Melbourne, and、uh, the residency is a really fantastic program for 
normally it's directed at artists, as you might guess, uh, which can be as broad as writers and poets. It doesn't have to be a you know recreation of an, a tangible artwork. But uh, what was quite unusual is that they were interested in doing a, an arts conservation residency, which was fantastic. What's really good about the AsiaLink Arts Residency Grant is that they're really understanding of how anything relating to the arts can fluctuate quite a lot. You go in with a plan mm-hmm. um, and then you just immerse yourself in the culture. So the idea is to build relationships and promote understanding between Australia and Asia, various Asian countries. And they really encourage us to meet with people and you know, network sounds very clinical, but actually just... Yeah, that that immersion, uh, take language classes, get out there, see as many people, do as many things as you can. Not so much focused on you must deliver this many artworks at the end of your residency, but more how has it progressed your your personal practice? Kind of leads me to another question. Does working in this field, the conservation field, require intimate knowledge of the culture that you're working to preserve, or does intimate knowledge of the materials itself give enough uh, insight to carry out conservation efforts? I think in the past, particularly in European and Northern American contexts, people, conservators, liked to think that their knowledge of materials was enough. If you were an expert in silk, you could look at the degradation, recognize what was going on, uh, identify the best treatment, and you know, Bob's your uncle, you're, you're, you're ready to go. Yeah. But in the 21st century, and particularly our, the way that we're trained in Australia, there's the understanding that the significance of an object is not just in its material integrity, it's also about its significance, what it, uh, what it means to people, why it was made in the first place, and why we're, why we're keeping it. And conservators, amongst the many skills that we have need to be really good at talking, identifying the original, the source community, and then talking to people there and finding out their expertise, getting their contribution. You can't, the reality is there's so many things. If you go to your average museum, there'll be things from so many different cultures and so many different materials that if you tried to take care of everything, you wouldn't have the knowledge. Mm. And unfortunately in the past, I think a lot of conservators just charged ahead and did what they thought was best for the object to make sure that it was in great condition and would last forever. But actually they may have lost a lot of information that was really important, failed to to really connect with its its origins. What are some of the special skills or skills that you need to be a conservationist? Uh, hi, no, you just used the word conservationist. I did, yeah. A conservationist and a conservator. Conservator, okay. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Conservationist is actually, it's, it confuses people a lot when they hear I work in conservation. They think conservationist, so uh, that's save the planet, right? To take care uh, of the environment, mm-hmm. save the whales, stop the mining, which I'm all for, but that's not what I'm trained for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll sign all the petitions. A conservator is someone who takes care of cultural materials, which can be, it's not just art restoration. In fact, we avoid restoration currently. Uh, and it's not specifically paintings or priceless ceramics or even heritage buildings. It's a cultural material is something that is almost a vessel for, for transmitting knowledge and culture. Mm. So it can range from 
a comic book to you know a tractor engine it depends if you think about all the different kinds of museums you have in the world and the crazy variety of things that can be contained in there um, all of those are cultural materials what is the biggest challenge in conservation here in Taiwan definitely the climate and this comes back to I think the the challenges of uh, I'd say a, a western approach to conservation where they identified what was best for museums and cultural objects in the northern hemisphere and uh, you know um, northern America and Europe you could argue have got similar climates mm. not identical but there are some similarities whereas when you come to Taiwan you find that there are very little there are very few similarities um, there aren't even seasons that are similar and the issue is avoiding fluctuations in temperature and humidity those are the two biggest enemies of cultural materials and uh, so the biggest challenge in Taiwan is that people have educated themselves they've learned that ideally you want to keep your museum at around 20 degrees centigrade and the relative humidity around 55 percent humidity and then at the end of the day, they switch off the AC and they go home. And suddenly the temperatures start to rise. The humidity becomes, you know, some, yeah. you know how it is here sometimes right. during the rainy season. Uh, and then the next day they come back in and they switch everything back on. And everything, the temperatures drop and the humidity mm. drops. And those cycles of fluctuation are really damaging because if you think of a uh, material like wood that absorbs humidity and then it dries out, and it contracts mm. and splits form, and you've got that cycle of drying out, humidi rehumidifying over and over. Yeah. Uh, and unfortunately, sometimes we'd be better off with no AC at all because if you just follow the the regular patterns of weather that occur, they're a lot more gentle. That f the fluctuation will be over a twenty four hour period. Gradual. Yeah. Which is less harmful, and it can follow the season. So during the rainy season, it will just always be pretty humid, and you try and keep ventilation going so it doesn't get moldy. But just mm -hmm. kind of accepting that it's not perfect, but at least there's not that fluctuation. So it's kind of like man-made uh, degradation. Yeah, it's sort of artificial environments, mm -hmm. and they're designed to protect them. And and that's why in Australia we've actually launched a. Uh, an organization called the Asia-Pacific Tropical Climate Art Network, I think, APCON. Um, and we're trying to really uh, support both in interacting with local communities who, know, who kind of know how to handle the weather before there was AC. People have been here for hundreds and thousands of years even. Managing to, yeah, without all their possessions just falling apart just because they didn't have AC. Um, and also trying to set new standards which are more realistic and more sustainable than the Western museological standard of 20 degrees and 55% humidity. What are some of the modern challenges of uh, material conservation? Uh, I would say, again, in the 21st century, it's definitely sustainability because conservation is a really expensive um, an expensive action and you could argue it's kind of a an elitist thing to be selecting objects and deciding that these deserve to be kept in immaculate condition 
in a, a glass case with 24-hour climate control. I mean, that consumes a lot of resources. Often treatments involve hundreds and hundreds of man hours, but also very expensive materials. And so my personal interest is in finding sustainable conservation approaches, which look a lot more at human interaction. And could we spend that money in programs which engage with community, which don't focus so much on having an object in mint condition, but a lot more in preserving the intangible the spiritual sometimes or the just the the emotional connection with people because you could argue that if people continue to know and care about an object it's better conserved than if it's locked away in a dark cold room somewhere in storage where because a lot of objects even if you go the glass case route you're still going to avoid having them on display for more than maybe six months or a year if they're very fragile so we'll keep them locked in dark cold storage Mm -hmm. Um, but if nobody knows about it does it really exist it's kind of a philosophical Mm -hmm. question Um, so yeah I think that that's really the challenge is just the sustainability and also the relevance to people not making it um, when you think about the the global population and then the number of them who have access to a museum um, particular museums say like the British Museum (laughs) which Mm -hmm. has such a huge collection uh, but there's not really access for many of the people who that heritage arguably belongs to. Yeah, that's actually a very interesting topic. It is, it is, and it's a problematic one. Um, I know that the British Museum has tried to take good care of the things that it acquired during Britain's colonial era, Mm -hmm. but that acquisition, I think there's a need for accountability and to recognise that acquisition is also could be called looting it could be called stealing it could be called paying a very very low price to someone who wasn't even in a position to sell it who didn't own it in the first place mm-hmm. and look we every country has its problematic history it would be nice perhaps for the british museum to be a bit more um verbal in acknowledging the role that it played and how it has come to have these collections and there's a lot of There could be more goodwill in terms of objects which mean a lot to those original communities. I think about in uh, in Australia, the I think the Gonegal Shield that was taken by Captain Cook when he arrived. He shot a number of Indigenous Australians, uh, took the shield and some weapons, brought them back to the British well to England. Uh, They're now owned by the British Museum, and uh, the descendants of those the people who first encountered Captain Cook have asked for them to be returned to them because they have a huge significance for them. Uh, and the British Museum says, mm, no. <laughs> wow. Kind of goes counter to the culture of, of preserving culture or anything like that or just appreciating culture. Yeah, especially because when you see that in the British Museum, it's the context in which it would, is displayed. It's kind of a, a bit of a dingy case and people would easily walk by and go, oh, Captain Cook. They won't think about the people and the 80,000 years of culture behind those objects and how much, how much they mean and how painful it is for Indigenous Australia to, to have their culture taken from them again and again and no right to return to them. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. So this is going to be a pretty segue, but uh, where else? <laughs> <laughs> but um, where else have you worked other than here? Uh, so 
During my training, I did uh, a lot of volunteering, um, not as much as I would have liked because I had to work full time, but uh, I volunteered at the Koori Heritage Trust in Melbourne and uh, also in the Akala Arts Centre in Northern Territories, the northernmost part of uh, Australia. And both of those were really important, I think, in shaping my, my view of conservation and what's important because working with... Uh, so both of those are Aboriginal Australian Indigenous art centres. In shaping my understanding of what's important, because you come in, you want to fix everything, you can see something's looking a bit dusty, there's some, a bark painting that's got a bit split, but if you stop and actually talk and listen to people and find out what they care about, they're happy to have those objects there, but it's much more about the oral culture around it and the significance and why they're important to them and how to maintain their culture in today's Australian society and in a, a global scale as well. And you can, if you don't consult, you could easily get sidetracked by the actual material. So those, those, those projects for me were really important. I also have been really involved in Indonesia on a, I call it the musical hut, <laughs> an instrument that's uh, known as bundengan. I was given uh this object to treat in my last year of my training. It's gigantic, well, gigantic. It's big enough for a human to crawl under and take shelter from the rain. And we were very confused as to what exactly it was and how it could be an instrument because it came from the Monash, uh, the music archive of Monash University. And because I wasn't prepared to just jump in and try and fix the broken parts without understanding it, I started, uh, I turned to Google, I turned to the internet as a, I'll confess I was completely overwhelmed. So it was kind of a procrastination as well as research. And I eventually connected with a really amazing revival community in Wonosobo in Java. And uh, I've been going back and forth um, with organizing performances and workshops to teach people how to make the instrument and how to play it, uh, exhibitions and I've uh, just recently got funded to take everyone to Australia next year, which we're all really excited about. Yeah, so that's those have been the main main focus so far this year. So, what are your future plans other than you know going to Indonesia and taking them to to Australia? I know that, and you may have gathered from my criticisms of the British Museum. I think there's a lot that needs to change in conservation. I think. Asia Pacific is really interesting because there are some standards that are set up, but people aren't attached to them. They just, oh, we thought that was best practice. But if you think we should do things differently, let's give it a go. I think that given that so much of the museum collections are in Northern America and Western Europe, collections that have been taken from other parts of the world there's really a need for consultation and there needs to be a mediator and so that is where I ideally would like to come in obviously perhaps be less harsh in my criticisms because it's it's always complicated working within a museum structure mm. but uh, I'd love to be able to be a, a bridge between source communities and the museums not just so the museums can do a better job, but so that the source communities can have access to that information and to knowledge about the objects and about conservation and how to care for their own heritage. So uh, you say museums can do a better job. What constitutes a good museum? I think, and it's it's kind of, uh, it sounds a little bit uh, self-defeating when I think there's too much of a concentration on the material. 
Uh, some of the best museums I've been to have got very few actual objects on display. Um, what, what are some of those museums? So uh, recently I was in uh, the, the Holocaust Museum in Cape Town in South Africa. And there's so much of a focus on information and visual engagement. Like you still need pictures, pictures of objects, pictures of people, but storytelling so that people really understand the significance. So you don't get to see an actual object for quite a long time uh, as you go through the museum and you learn more about how the Second World War started, about how you know the Holocaust came to be. So that when you finally see, I think one of the first things you see is um, is a yellow star. It has so much weight on it because you you're truly looking at it with a full understanding of the implication of informed everything. eyes. Yeah. Mm. you're not just seeing a piece of fabric. It's yellow. It's shaped like a star. You're think you're really thinking about its significance. Um, but a little bit more locally, uh, there's a museum in in Dihuaqie, in Datong district, which the whole district is gorgeous for a conservator. It's just a dream walking through there. Mm. Museum 207, uh, Arling Ti, I think it's in Chinese. Mm. And uh, they are focused on terrazzo, which in Chinese I believe is mo shizi, which is a, a decorative art um, where people... It's similar to mosaic. There's a lot of ground-up coloured stone, and you've probably seen a lot of places around Taiwan, Taipei. Tainan has a lot of them as well, outside the front of shops or inside shops. Coloured designs um, surrounded by thin brass outlines. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, you you don't necessarily stop and stare at them, but it's one of the things that contributes to an overall feeling of, you know, something beautiful that you're walking through. Dihuaqie has a lot. Mm -hmm. So Museum 207 has, I think, four floors. And... The, it's a very simple layout. You're not overwhelmed with information or with objects. You get a really good understanding of the material and the technique and you get to see some great examples and it's quite interactive. Um, but two of those four floors are contemporary artworks and artists who've engaged with the material. So they, they cover, it's a very narrow focus, but they go into it in great depth but without leaving you feeling at all overwhelmed. So you come out of it, you know, it's a nice little half hour spent whilst you're in Dihuaqie learning a bit more about something that is really Taiwanese. Yeah, I have to check that out. I've never been. So what's a bad museum? A bad museum. It seems unfair to call anyone a bad museum because I think museums are, you know, again, in the 21st century, it's about sharing culture. Um, once upon a time, it felt more about displaying the things that you'd looted from other countries, right, yeah. <laughs> showing off your riches. A bad museum is perhaps one where the objects are stripped of their their meaning and they're just there purely for for aesthetic reasons. Mm, like decoration. They're just decoration. Mm. But even then, if they're kept in good condition, then I guess why not? Someone else can come along and interpret them better later. But often you have the, the combination of the two where people say, let's set up a museum about X and they gather a few artifacts together and they put up a few panels and then they put them there maybe in broad daylight, uh, which is terrifying for a conservator. There's light damage and UV damage are both probably one of the, the harshest causes for, de for degradation. Um, and then they just left to gather dust. There's no... They never review what, what they have on display. But I don't think that's a bad museum. I think that's a museum that doesn't have a conservator. To be honest, 
And often they don't. There's no not necessarily funding for conservation. So what are some of the techniques uh, or what, what are some of the things that you have to look out for as a conservator, like light and UV damage? So, yeah, uh, I mentioned temperature and relative humidity and light. So we talk about the 12 agents of degradation. Actually, it's one of kind of our ABC when we're at university and uh, we're doing training. Hopefully I can recall most of them off the top of my head. We're meant to be able to just reel them off. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we'll have pests, so light, uh, water, uh, heat, pests, vandalism. I've never been someone who could understand how you could carve your initials on anything from a tree to <laughs> to a pyramid, but people do it. And there can be unintentional vandalism. Unfortunately, it still falls in the same category, uh, as well as people who will steal things. So there is dissociation is actually the one that I focus on the most. Again, it's so traditionally dissociation is when you have an object and everything gets in a museum gets accessioned. We give it a code and that code corresponds to a file which has all the information about the object, where it's from, like its provenance, information that relates to it. And perhaps if it's a museum that has a lot of conservation work, it will also have the details of when it was previously treated or any other, you know, it's, it's history, it's, it's case file. If the object loses its code it can be really difficult to work out what it is. And arguably, similar to what I was saying before about an object that's cut off from people, if it's cut off from its information, if it's dissociated, we can't even justify keeping it a lot of the time, um, depending on the size of your collection. But if you think about a, a natural history museum that has 10,000 bird's eggs, and unfortunately there's a flood and all the labels have come off, and now we've just got a bunch of eggshells, and are they useful? Mm. <laughs> But for me, dissociation extends a little bit further into the significance. And so I think if you've, if the object, you know where it's from, but you don't really know what it's for, that's also a form of dissociation. And it's, I think I've, I've chosen to focus on that as like the most threatening agent of degradation. And knowing these, these agents of degradation is the, the cornerstone of what we call preventive conservation. So that's also about, in that conversation about sustainability, it's a much more affordable way of caring for a collection because you're preventing rather than curing damage. And uh, often it's you know keeping it clean to avoid pests rather than coming in, trying to remove pests and repair the damage that they've caused. So uh, last question, uh, what is your dream project and why? Um, so I would really, I, I've obviously got a, a big interest in puppetry and performance um, musical instruments, puppets, costume as well, which is also in a way a a performative object. I would really like to spend some time in Indonesia learning how to make wayang kulit, which are the leather shadow puppets, um, because there's a lot of traditional knowledge into how to make them, the materials, the techniques, but also how to care for them. They have rituals in terms of how they're stored, how they're taken out regularly for airing, and there's a lot of importance given to the the spiritual power that resides within these objects and I'd really love to have a museum somewhere with a big collection of wine kulit say we'd like you <laughs> we'll fund for you to go and spend you know, six months in Indonesia learning about wine kulit with puppet makers and puppeteers and then come back and tell us how best to care for our collection <laughs> all right very cool <laughs> 
Okay, Rosie, thank you very much for coming in. It's my pleasure. Thank you. I appreciate it, and uh, good luck. Thank you. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Rosie Cook, a cultural materials conservator. That was this week's Taiwan Talk. I'm Alex Lewis.